the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. Mark was kind of, I would say, leader of everything. Since we were little kids, I didn't like him. I always would tell McCaden, like, he's going to get you in trouble. He just had this vibe of he was going to do something wrong. And he really didn't care who it was going to hurt. I remember my mom was like calling me into the room and I was like, what? And she's like, well, they just arrested him and four other boys. And I remember being like in shock and I kind of obsessed over it for quite a while. Like, what were you doing? Like, why are you throwing rocks off of a bridge? And then finding out it was more than just rocks. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Fanick. I'm sitting here with Alexis Linkletter. I forgot which intro I'm doing. We have so many different intros. Do I say my last name? That's for the Patreon. For the regular episode, I'm Jack Fanick and you're Alexis Linkletter. Like, That's who knows? Right. That's who knows? right. Three episodes a week will do that to you. I know. It's a brain brain mush, brain meld. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? I feel good. Productive. I know. We've got a productive morning going on. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Patreon, if you're not a member of our Patreon, you need to be. Join us in the First Day Underground. We have so much bonus content for you over there. So if you are just like really craving some good true crime podcasts and you can't find any on the normal feed, we're here for you in the First Day Underground. And when we say bonus content, I want to elaborate a little bit. Yes. We're talking one full true crime episode per week, one extra. So you're getting four more a month. And we're not talking just like banter, a fully researched, well-done, impassioned telling of these stories. And all of them are coming from our subscribers and Patreon. So if there's a case that you haven't wanted to research yourself because it's exhaustive and arduous, (laughs) which it is, just send it to us and we'll do it. And then we'll give you the full 360 view on a case that has been gnawing at you. Absolutely. So yeah, join us over there. I don't think we have any other housekeeping, do we? No. All right. Well, uh, I feel like that's enough of that then. So let's turn down the lights. And turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. If there's one universal truth that we can all agree on, it's this. Teenagers are stupid. And if you're a teen firsty listening to this, don't freak out. It's not your fault. Teenagers have to be stupid. Believe it or not, we were even stupid once. It's part of, you know, developmental years as you're becoming full-fledged humans. Literally, as teenagers, your brains just aren't fully grown. Frontal lobes have years to go before they're ready to function at 100% capacity. So of course, teenagers' emotions rule their actions, their impulses, their hair-trigger responses, for better or for worse. Fun and excitement take priority over safety and security. And as a result, teens are going to take risks that they shouldn't. Dumb risks. Risks that make no sense at all, not even to them. But usually, these risks are forgivable. They're benign speeding down Main Street late at night when no one else is on the road, 
sneaking out after curfew to go to a party, lashing out at a parent who means well. Sure, these aren't great decisions, but they're not fatal. After all, teenagers don't want to get hurt, and they don't want to hurt anyone, typically. Sometimes, though, by chance, the risks teenagers take do hurt people. And all it takes is one bad decision, one mistake, one unlucky circumstance, and then that's it. The cosmos shuffles its deck of cards, and at random, lives are ruined. Families are devastated. The line between risky and criminal becomes blurred, all because of a stupid prank turned deadly. So today's case begins on October 18th of the year 2017. Just a few weeks earlier, on October 1st, a shooter opened fire at the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival on the Las Vegas Strip. To this date, it's the deadliest mass shooting committed by a single person in the U.S. At least 58 people died and 546 were injured. That was absolutely terrifying. Terrifying. Also, in October of 2017, movie producer Harvey Weinstein faced over a dozen sexual assault allegations. Since then, he's been convicted and is currently rotting in prison for 40 years. In lighter news, Cardi B's song Bodak Yellow was number one on the music charts, while Post Malone's Rockstar followed closely behind at number two. And as for movies, Blade Runner 2049, which starred Ryan Gosling and Harrison Ford, was incredibly popular. And the setting for today's case is Clio, Michigan. Located in eastern Michigan, Clio is a small city with a population of about 2,400 people. It's considered part of the Flint metropolitan area since it's only 15 miles away from the medium-sized city of Flint, Michigan. When the city of Clio was first settled in 1837, its name was originally Varna, after a well-to-do family in the area with ties to the railroad and grain industries. But in 1866, they renamed the town to Clio to honor the Greek muse of history. Today, Clio regularly hosts music and art festivals, as well as farmer's markets. Our first three for today's case is named Alyssa, and Alyssa knows all about Clio, Michigan, because that's where she grew up. It's like a little town in between Saginaw and Flint in Michigan. It's called Clio. It's like really, really little. It wasn't like too busy. As a kid, Alyssa went to elementary school in Clio. There, she met a group of three boys. The boys' names were Mike Din Payne, Mark Sikelski, and Trevor Gray. And there was a fourth kid named Alexander Miller. But he went to the same school as Alyssa and the other boys. But Alyssa didn't see Alexander around as much, but she knew of him. When we first met, I knew two of them in fourth grade. I had classes with McCaden and Mark was like in the other teacher's classroom, but McCaden and Mark were like best friends. When we got to fifth grade, that's when I believe we met Trevor. I'm pretty sure Alex was with us in our school in elementary, but I can't remember. I know McCaden and Mark had been friends since they were like smaller than we already were. Alex, I don't think was really friends with them too much. I know they like talked a little bit, but I know it was really McCaden and Mark. And then they would randomly chat with like the other boys once we got to like fifth grade and whatnot. And it's kind of crazy because Alyssa's first impression of this group of boys seemed to accurately reflect their personalities for years to come. 
Even as teenagers, the boys would appear to stick to the same roles that Alyssa observed way back in elementary school. So you got Mark. He was kind of the ringleader of the group. And his second in command was Mikadin. And then you've got the followers, Alexander and Trevor. And these are kind of not uncommon dynamics within high school cliques. Alex was always quiet. He never really did anything to where I was like, that seems weird. Him and Trevor always just kind of tried to fit in with everyone. So I feel like especially Trevor would try to just do stuff to get the other boys to not make fun of him. Mark was kind of, I would say, leader of everything. Since we were little kids, I didn't like him. I always would tell McCaden, like, he's going to get you in trouble. He just had this vibe of he was going to do something wrong. And he really didn't care who it was going to hurt. Even though they were young, Alyssa could already tell that Mark already had some fairly serious red flags popping up. So he wasn't really Alyssa's cup of tea. There were moments that they would have, like, arguments with other boys and he would, like, take things too far sometimes. Or he would always resort to, like, more of a violent approach on things, especially when we got to middle school. Like, don't worry, we'll just deal with it when we get out of school. And I'm like, we're 10, 11. Like, what do you mean we're going to deal with it when we get out of school? So it was those types of things, like, it made no sense at moments. But Mikanen was a different story. You see, Alyssa and Mikanen actually got along pretty well. So well, in fact, that they developed some feelings for each other. You know, kind of puppy love, if you will. It was a little kid romance. I met McCaden and for some reason instantly liked him, was drawn to him. I wouldn't call it dating because we were fourth grade and fifth grade and sixth grade, but it would be like a back and forth thing and he would go chat with other girls and date other girls and then come back and try to date me or whatnot. But Mikadin wasn't perfect either, and sometimes he could take things a little too far also. I know that there were moments my parents didn't really like him because he would get me in trouble. I would get in trouble for talking in class, or I'd get caught holding his hand or hugging him, not paying attention in class. I know one day he was, like, messing with me and, like, jammed a binder into my stomach, and I had to go home early because I was in so much pain because of how hard he had hit me with the binder. Right before Alyssa began middle school, her dad got a new job in Indiana, so she moved away. And naturally, she lost touch with Mike and Mark, Trevor, and Alex. And honestly, she might have never thought about those boys ever again. Except one day when Alyssa was starting high school, her mother asked her a weird question out of the blue. It was either my freshman or sophomore year of high school. I remember my mom was like calling me into the room and I was like, what? And she's like, what is... McCaden's last name from Clio. And I was like, Payne, why? And she's like, well, they just arrested him and four other boys. And I remember being like in shock and I kind of obsessed over it for quite a while. Like I was checking every day, every week to see when the court hearings were happening, what all was said, like why this happened? Like, what were you doing? Like, why are you throwing rocks off of a bridge? And then finding out it was more than just rocks. So what was going on? Was someone hurt? Who was involved? What exactly happened? And why in the world were five teenage boys getting arrested? 
To answer these questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back. By the fall of 2017, a group of five boys from Clio, Michigan had become relatively close friends. These boys were 15-year-old Trevor Anthony Gray, 15-year-old Alexander Miller, 16-year-old Mark Andrew Zakowski, and 16-year-old Mikanen Molly Payne, and 17-year-old Kyle Anger. They mostly knew each other from school, and together they would be known as the Clio Five. We don't know much about each of these young men as individuals. Frankly, they were really young when all this happened, so they weren't really old enough to have accomplished much or have much of a track record. We do know that the Clio Five liked to hang out together a lot. They would all hop into the oldest of the group, Kyle Angler's flatbed pickup truck, gather a bunch of large rocks and other items like used tires and broken car parts, and this is the activity they would do. They would find a highway overpass where they could play a game that they like to call overpassers. Sounds like a great idea. And if you haven't heard of overpassers, don't worry. I don't think anybody really has, but we're going to explain it to you. Basically, the five boys would throw all of these rocks and the other objects that Alexis was talking about off an overpass and onto a highway with oncoming traffic. It sounds so dangerous. Deranged. Insane. It seems so fucking obvious that this is life-ruining. A horrible, horrible idea. Like, beyond. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So you probably know where this is going to go. But when a boy hit a car, they would yell dinger, as in they successfully dinged some poor, unsuspecting person's car. And for each dinger that the boys received, they would earn points. And those points would later translate into money. Yeah. These boys were throwing rocks and junk off an overpass and purposefully hitting people's vehicles, vehicles that were traveling at least 70 miles per hour below. And these rocks weren't pebbles. They're small boulders. Some were the size of basketballs, weighing more than 20 pounds. Like, so fucking dangerous. The Clio 5 had played this dangerous game so often that they were actually kind of well-known for it. According to Michigan Live, the boys had thrown rocks, engine pistons, brake rotors, tractor tires, mufflers, a shopping cart, and a couch off various overpasses around town. And they were suspected of doing this up to 10 different times often at rush hour, and they damaged at least six vehicles. Genesee County Undersheriff Chris Swanson said, this has been a long-running game with these kids. But whenever anybody called the cops, the boys would drive away or scatter into surrounding neighborhoods. It was hard to catch them. And that would be the end of that. And I'm sure the police didn't look too hard for them. They're just being punk-ass kids, right? Still, we're left wondering why anyone would do something like this. How they couldn't have seen the million ways this could have gone horrifically awry. Stupid teenagers or not, it's so obvious how incredibly dangerous this game was. But our first-degree Alyssa knew four of the five young men involved in this, and she could see in her mind's eye how it all might have played out. It was just to kind of, like, cause damage. They, like, knew it could possibly cause an accident and people could get hurt. I don't know if it was a thrill thing. I know Alex and Trevor were always just, they went along with whatever the main guys wanted to do. And I think they were like, oh, my God, we're 14, 15, hanging out with 17, 18-year-olds. And Trevor, Alex, McCaden, and Mark were all in the same grade. Trevor and Alex just so happened to be younger than McCaden and Mark. Kyle was in a completely different grade, and I don't even think he went to the school, or he did, but he, like, transferred in, like, end of middle school, beginning of high school. 
There's a lot of speculation that because Kyle was a year or two older than the rest of the Clio 5, he was actually the ringleader of the whole thing, and that the overpassers game was his idea. I mean, Kyle was in charge of the wheels. True. And the other four boys would later tell the authorities that this whole debacle was mostly Kyle's fault. But Alyssa's not so sure of that. That's how this group dynamic would have played out. I mean, she's skeptical. She recalled that Mark was really the manipulative one, one who knew how to get his friends to do what he wanted. So Alyssa doesn't necessarily think it was Kyle leading the way, at least all of the time. I don't necessarily think it was him. I think maybe he had like, oh, have you heard about this? I really think that he might have brought it up, but I think Mark might have pushed it more and that McCaden might have, I don't know, and he was like, oh, come on, just do it. Like, you really going to back down off of this? And that's all it took for McCaden to do it because that's all that would take for McCaden to do little things that would get him in trouble in middle school, in elementary school. And I know there were probably other added words in there that weren't the best, but it that's enough to get McCaden to do it for Mark to say that. On the night of Wednesday, October 18th of 2017, Kenneth White was riding in the front passenger seat of his buddy's van. Kenneth and his friend, Stephen Anther, worked in construction together, and the two men were on their way home after a particularly grueling 12-hour shift. Their commute was 90 minutes from the construction site at O'Gray, Michigan, to Kenneth's home in Mount Morris, Michigan. But at 8.30 p.m. on that night, they were almost home, just 10 minutes away from home. Right, and as Kenneth and Stephen were driving along Interstate 75, they were about to head under an overpass near the city of Clio, when out of nowhere, someone dropped a six-pound rock from the overpass bridge above. And that rock crashed through the passenger side of Stephen's van's front windshield, thus bludgeoning the 32-year-old Kenneth Andrew White in the head. Right away, surely horrified, Stephen pulled over to check on his friend. And right away, Stephen could tell that Kenneth was not okay. Kenneth had been knocked completely unconscious and he was bleeding profusely. And though the specific details weren't released, Stephen's version of events make it sound like Kenneth's head was in really bad shape. So of course, he called 911 frantically. According to the reporting, during the nearly 15-minute phone call, the dispatcher could hear the desperation in Stephen's voice as he asked the emergency responders to please hurry. Stephen even pleads to Kenneth himself, saying, Kenny, don't die, man. Come on, man. We've got that fishing trip to go to, Kenny, please. Oh, my God. I just got the chills. That's... I just don't think any friend should have to do that to their... Witness their friend suffering and, like, how scary that would be. Like, I literally just pictured you, and it's like, imagine you're pleading, like... We have plans and like trying to keep them alert and excited, like alive. It's just fucking unacceptable and senseless. And even though Stephen did his best to stop Kenneth's bleeding, it was too late. And shortly after, Kenneth was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. Kenneth Andrew White was born on February 7th of 1985, and he had a big blended family. There were his six siblings, three brothers and three sisters, and his many aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews, all of whom Kenneth loved dearly. 
Across the board, Kenneth, or Kenny as those close to him called him, was recognized as very caring and very supportive. He was quick to smile during tough situations, and he was always there when his family needed him. Ken's younger brother told WXYZ Detroit, Kenneth was the best person I knew. Each night, Ken would call his father who lived in Florida at about 10 p.m., and Kenneth's mom said that Kenneth was a big old goofball. He reminded her of Jim Carrey's iconic 90s character, Ace Ventura. Ugh, my favorite. The best. So Kenneth wasn't just a fun guy. He was also a really smart guy. He understood what he could change in the world and what he couldn't. And one of his most common sayings is, it is what it is. I really resonate with this guy. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, Kenneth had an extremely generous soul. His family stated that he would happily offer the shirt off his back to anybody who needed it. And multiple friends reported that Kenneth would pull his car over to help a stranger shovel the snow from their driveway. Like, what a guy. Yeah. And according to his obituary, he enjoyed playing video games, spending time outdoors, and watching sports. Kenneth was just a regular person like you or like me. He was a good man. He was a good brother, a good dad. And he didn't deserve the tragedy that happened to him. Even though Kenneth was born in Michigan, he spent a lot of his life across the country in South Carolina. And while there, Kenneth began a relationship with a woman named Amy. And according to Amy, she and Kenneth fell in love at first sight. And in 2010, they were officially in a relationship. And at that time, Kenneth already had three children of his own. And then two years later in 2012, he and Amy welcomed their son into the world. In August of 2017, only two months before his death, Kenneth and Amy moved their family from South Carolina to Michigan. By this time, Kenneth and Amy were engaged to be married, and they had hopes of starting a new life in Michigan together. Their littlest son, now five years old, had begun school, and Amy was continuing her education also. On the same day that Kenneth was killed, October 18th of 2017, Amy had been notified that she'd gotten a new job at a bank. And while Kenneth was still at work that day, Amy called him to share the good news. And according to Amy's court testimony, things are finally starting to come together for us. On October 18th of 2017, Kenneth's sister was on her way to see her brother. Her birthday was the day before, on October 17th, and she was going to visit him that evening. Maybe this was a double whammy kind of celebration for her birthday and to celebrate Amy's new job. Kenneth and Brianna, the sister, spoke on the phone just seconds before he was about to go under the overpass that would end Kenneth's life. And Kenneth's sister remembered that he ended their conversation by saying he was passing Vienna Road and he'd be home soon. When Kenneth's sister received the phone call moments later, she probably figured it was Kenneth just updating her about his commute, but it wasn't. It was a gut-wrenching phone call with someone notifying her that Kenneth had been severely injured and was likely dead. Meanwhile, at the crime scene, multiple vehicles had pulled over to help Kenneth, and four of those vehicles had sustained their own damage from the Clio 5 dropping rocks and other items off the overpass. One of the drivers of those vehicles was named India Reeves. She was directly behind Kenneth and Stephen's van. India could see the rocks being tossed over the overpass, but she couldn't change lanes to avoid them in time. There were too many vehicles surrounding her traveling at high speeds. She told WXYZ Detroit, I'm lucky to still be alive. That could have been me. As a result of the rocks that hit India's car, her tire blew out. And then there was also Jim Schulz. And when Jim's Mazda 3 inadvertently drove over a rock that was thrown over the overpass, he pulled over at a gas station and called 911. In an interview with Michigan Live, he said, I saw the rock I ran over coming down. A split second later, and it could have been my windshield, we would have been planning a funeral for me. And that rock that Jim was talking about, 
is reported as being 10 inches long and 10 inches wide. And to put that in perspective, the diameter of a basketball is not even 10 inches. So this is a big ass rock. And after driving over it, Jim's oil pan was damaged and his cross member was dented. Seconds after Jim's vehicle was dinged at 8.30 p.m., Kenneth was hit. And since the authorities had already been notified by Jim and other angry drivers' 911 calls, they arrived at the scene only two minutes later. But as we mentioned before, Kenneth was already sadly beyond help. And so Kenneth's friend, Stephen, started calling Ken's loved one to share the awful news about what was happening. And Ken's family, of course, was beyond devastated. The whole situation is so horrible, but, you know, it makes the situation so much worse. The actions of the Clio 5 following this debacle. So first of all, they knew that their real-time game was going off the rails. They watched Steven's van and all of these other cars pull over. But did the five young men do anything about it? Did they turn themselves in, contact the police, tell their parents, you know, offer help to the poor bleeding man on the side of the road? Nope. The five teens went to a fast food restaurant, which our first degree Alyssa tells us was probably a Taco Bell. And if you were looking for yet another reason to be angry, well, here it is. Earlier that evening, the Clio 5 had thrown rocks off of a different highway overpass. So the one where Kenneth died, that was their second stop at least. We don't know. There might have been more. In total, it's estimated that the five teenagers dropped at least 13 big fucking rocks onto traffic that evening. And in my opinion, that number is probably shockingly low compared to the actual amount of rocks that these stupid boys were dropping at at least two overpasses. Like that kind of seems low. Yeah. And court hearings would later reveal that the five boys didn't realize Kenneth had died until about a day later. But as soon as that news was made available to them, the Clio 5 still didn't fess up. Instead, they began the process of getting their story straight through a group message on Snapchat. That means they wanted to get away with this. There was no, you know, guilt or sorrow or empathy for this innocent man's life that they had taken. I guess the one that had actually thrown the rock that went through the windshield that killed him was Kyle, was the oldest one. He was the one that actually threw the rock, and he was, like, being quiet in the group chat at this point. Mark and McCaden were telling Trevor and Alex, like, if you snitch, you're done. And they were trying to conceal it. They were like, just delete all the messages off your phone, get everything deleted, we're good. That's not going to work. Cops can pull that stuff up. They can get in and still get that stuff. So they were the ones pushing it. These Snapchat messages would become a focal point of this case, which obviously makes sense. How often can you really read the conversations of five people discussing a murder right after it happens? But the messages were never released in their entirety to the public. But this is what we know about them. Alexander Miller was the only one of the five who didn't participate in the Snapchat group message. Others in the group message wrote that Alexander was the most likely to snitch. Right. And Mark in these messages apparently repeatedly wrote to chill out. And someone else said that they needed to lay low to avoid prison. And some of them, though it's not clear who, besides it couldn't have been Alexander, discussed getting matching teardrop tattoos to signify their first successful kill. Like, disgusting. Fucking deranged. Like, Do you not see, and like, this is where immature minds, like you don't see the long-term consequences. Your empathy fucking chip in your brain is not developed. Like you don't understand the catastrophe in the emotional fucking tidal wave you've caused for the people in this man's life. Yeah. 
in the magnitude of what you've done. Like, it's so pathetic to read. No, they just think that they like did something cool and are going to get a fucking tattoo. Like, it's so gross. It's disgusting. So perhaps the most notable part of these Snapchat messages is that at no point in time did any of them suggest reporting what they'd just done. According to the officers on the case, the boy's only concern was keeping the whole thing quiet and covering their own asses. The day after Kenneth's death, on Thursday, October 19th, the police were investigating the case as a homicide. The authorities urged anyone with dash cam footage or home surveillance footage of the incident to contact the police department, and they were offering at this point a $2,500 reward. By the next day, on Friday, October 20th, the Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County had put up multiple billboards on major highways in the area, and they read who threw the rocks onto I-75 on Wednesday night. That same day, the police closed down southbound I-75 for an hour so they could catalog any evidence in the area. And it's a little unclear how exactly the police figured out that it was these five kids specifically within just a few days, but they did. According to WDIV Local 4 News, investigators received a tip regarding Kenneth's case on social media. But there's no telling what this social media tip actually was or said. Another report indicated that the authorities used surveillance footage from the fast food restaurant that the boys went to to link them to the case. And yet another report said that the police were able to track down Kyle based on a description of his pickup truck. So it's probably a combination of these three things that helped them piece together who was responsible. Right. And according to our first degree, Alyssa, 17-year-old Kyle Anger, who'd thrown the rock that killed Kenneth, came clean to the authorities on his own, though it's not exactly clear how or when this happened. Kyle freaked out because he wasn't expecting to kill anybody and went either the next day or the day after and like told them, hey, this was us because he felt bad. And he's like, I'm the one that threw the rock. Like, I wasn't expecting that to go through a windshield and kill somebody. I'm not hiding and being quiet. And somehow during these first few days of investigation, the police knew that Mike in pain was also involved. So the law enforcement officers interviewed him while he was at school. And according to Mike Eden's father, Michael, who spoke about the situation on Dr. Phil's talk show in January of 2018, gotta watch that one. Yeah. I love me some Dr. Phil. Mike Eden had confessed to everything within minutes. He'd even signed a written statement. By Saturday, October 21st, only three days after the event, all five of the boys had been taken into custody for questioning. And on Sunday, October 22nd, the five teens' families were told that the police had warrants out for their arrests. The officers requested that the boys come into the station and surrender themselves to the police by 10 p.m. that night. Something about the five boys being juveniles stopped the police from just slapping the cuffs on them like they normally would. And by 8.30 p.m., all five boys had turned themselves in. Four of them which would be Mark, Mikadin, Trevor, and Alexander. They were held at the Genesee Valley Regional Center for Juveniles, while Kyle Anger, who had recently turned 18, he had to go to the big boy jail in Genesee County. According to Michigan Live, all five teens faced charges of second-degree murder, conspiracy to commit second-degree murder, malicious destruction of property, and other felony and misdemeanor charges in connection to their actions that resulted in Ken's death. And none of them were granted bail. The judge who made this decision regarding the bail cited the seriousness of the nature of these charges and the danger to the public. Alyssa, our first degree, watched all of this unfold, and it must have felt surreal. 
These boys were nearly the same age as she was, from the same town as she was, and they all knew the same people. And their lives were falling apart publicly in front of everyone's eyes. Exactly. And before all this went down, Alyssa might have felt like she understood Mikeadin. They'd been friends and maybe more. And she would have never guessed that Mikeadin could take part in killing someone. And Alyssa was even more shocked when she learned that Mikeadin had played a major role in the Snapchat messages where the group of boys decided to remain silent. Part of me wanted to be like, oh, it was an accident. But then another part of me was like, you were 15. You were 15, 16. You were a sophomore in high school. You knew like this could kill somebody. He doesn't get to see his kids grow up and all these different things. He knew what he was doing and he tried to cover it up at the end. He told them to be quiet. The different things come into play, but it's kind of like also when you look at the Snapchat messages that came through between everybody, he was one of the people like, if you snitch, it's going to be a problem. And that's what hit me wrong. And Alyssa sometimes wonders how things could have happened differently. Like, what if all those years ago, Alyssa hadn't moved away? What if she and Mikeadin had seriously dated in high school? What if Alyssa had helped Mikeadin get out from under Mark's thumb? And what if Alyssa had been able to dissuade Mikeadin from taking part in this terrible, horrific, reckless game? It was that I told you so of I told you he was going to get you into something that was a problem or into a situation you couldn't get out of and look where you're at. And it was that frustrating moment of a back and forth thing of he listened to me. And when I told him, like, don't do that, like, it's going to get you in trouble. He never did it. So it's like, had we not moved, would things have been different? Would he have not gone out that night and thrown these rocks off the bridge? I wonder, had I stayed out there, would we have eventually, like, would we have been together? Would we have ended up at a different place, would you have still done this? After the Clio Five were arrested, all of them immediately pleaded guilty. So the question was no longer would these five teenagers be convicted. Now the big thing was, should they be sentenced as juveniles or adults? Since 17-year-old Kyle Anger turned 18 shortly after Kenneth White died, the decision for a specific case was a lot easier. He would be sentenced as an adult, not a juvenile. And as a result, Kyle's case moved significantly faster than the other four teens' cases. A year after Kenneth's death in October of 2018, Kyle was sentenced. He received 39 months to 20 years in prison for second-degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he did express remorse. When asked why he and his friends did what they did, Kyle said, We just weren't thinking of what the outcome could be of it and just doing dumb stuff. But remorse only goes so far when a person is dead. And in response to Kyle's sentencing, Kenneth's mother was not impressed. Michigan Live reported her as saying, A young man was taken from a family, a loving, caring family. And now his son has to grow up. His daughter has to grow up without him. Where is the fairness here? 39 months for murder. This is a great injustice. This is a slap in my face. This is a slap in my son's face. And in January of 2021, after serving the bare minimum of his sentence, 39 months exactly, Kyle Anger was released from prison. That seems like a light sentence to you. You're not alone. Alyssa wasn't a fan either. He knew what he was doing. They were doing this for hours. They had hit a few cars already. The cars had, like, kind of swerved. Like, they had almost caused multiple accidents. And they saw this rock go through the windshield, and they saw it pull over. So I feel like he should have gotten longer 
I understand time served, whatever, but I feel like he shouldn't have been out after three years of serving. Like he should have been in there longer for his actions, even though he came in and like confessed and gave everybody what they needed to arrest them all. But that doesn't mean you only get three years in prison when you killed somebody. But even though Kyle's case was over and done with, the other four of the Clio Five were embroiled in a massive legal battle. In 2018, Mark, Mikeadin, Trevor, and Alexander accepted a plea deal. They would plead guilty to manslaughter as long as they were charged as minors in juvenile court. But in an event that almost never happens, the judge did not accept this plea deal. So in 2019, the four teenagers tried again. The prosecuting and defense attorneys crafted new plea deals in which the four boys would plead guilty to some charges and be sentenced as juveniles. But once again, the judge, it didn't sit well with them, and he did not accept the deal. And this was Judge Joseph J. Farah. And Farah explained that should the four teens want to be considered juveniles, they must have a juvenile sentencing in an open court with live witnesses and input from all involved. So basically, the judge was saying that if they wanted to receive a lesser sentence as juveniles, he was going to make them air everything out to the public eye. And this actually became a massive controversy. From the very beginning, this case made national headlines, but now it was even bigger. Right. On the one hand, some people liked that the judge was going to hold these boys to task, make them come to court with a plea deal that actually had some consequences. But others were baffled that these four boys who, at the time of the crime, were undoubtedly minors, were getting this much backlash. To them, it seemed obvious. They were juveniles. Sentenced them as juveniles. And as the years dragged on, the parents of the four boys became angrier and angrier. They held protests, they went on talk shows, and they did whatever else they could to draw attention to this strangely elongated process. Meanwhile, Kenneth White's family was determined to see some actual consequences for the death of their loved one. In February of 2019, Kenneth's dad asked that the four teens be sentenced as adults. He said they all made decisions to load the vehicle with the rocks, and they all agreed to throw the rocks over the overpass. I really don't believe one should be charged and the rest get light sentences as juveniles because of more privileged lives. My son paid for his life. And then in 2020, COVID hit. So the four boys' cases slowed down even more due to, obviously, nationwide shutdowns we all experienced. Then 2021 came, and the four teens' cases still weren't resolved. In fact, Kyle was released from prison while the remaining four Clio 5 were still being held in incarceration facilities awaiting their trial proceedings. And finally, on May 28th of 2021, the Michigan Court of Appeals reversed the ruling of Judge Farah regarding the whole I'm not accepting your plea deal fiasco. And by the end of 2021, four years after Kenneth White's death, all four boys were sentenced as juveniles. The court accepted their time served, which was about 1,300 days, and they were all given one year of probation. So during their sentencing hearings, all four of the teens expressed remorse, just like Kyle had. But yet again, the whole situation just didn't sit well with Kenneth's family. I mean, how could it? It didn't seem fair that Kenneth's life had to end while these young men could continue living their lives. With such lenient punishments, could they have really learned significant lessons? Kenneth's sister told Michigan Live, I think they taught a lot of children out there, if you're kids and you're not a bad kid, then you can get away with a lot more than you should. It's upsetting. And while all this was going on, Mikeadin had tried to reach out to his old flame and her first degree, Alyssa. He'd actually been trying to get in touch with her for years, but he was only able to reach out once his court case was all settled. He messaged and was explaining to me like, yeah, I've given your name to my family to try and find you. 
And I was like, to find me. And he's like, yeah, so I could write you like letters and like have you be able to write back to give you like my information or whatever. And he's like, they tried for months and couldn't find you. And he's like, they were like actively looking for like a year for you. So when they had like, I guess, started looking for me, he was like 17. So I was like my junior year of high school and he wasn't able to contact me until I was in between my freshman and sophomore year of college. Initially, Alyssa was intrigued by the idea of talking to Mike again. After all, she had a million questions that she was dying to get answers for. I wanted to know why he did it, like what was going through his mind that made him like, oh yeah, let's go throw 25 pound rocks off a bridge. Let's go throw cushions and chairs and all these different things off a bridge at cars. And it's not going to hurt anybody. Like it just made no sense. So part of me wanted to talk to him. And the other part of me was like, maybe I shouldn't. But for some reason, I still felt like drawn to him in a sense. And I tried to ask him without asking him, without making it a whole argument. And he always just tried to avoid it. He's like, I don't really want to talk about it. Like it happened. We shouldn't have done it. Like we were being stupid. He's like, I'm an idiot. He's like, that's like the worst thing I could have done. Like he just would avoid it. He wouldn't really give me an answer as to why or what were you thinking? Like, why did you think that that was a good idea to do that? Like there are two, three little kids that don't have their dad anymore because you wanted to throw rocks at a car for what you lost three, four years of your life being in juvie for what? But it was quickly apparent that Mike Eden wasn't looking to reflect inwardly. Instead, he just wanted her romantically. And even then, Mikeyden wasn't great at doing that. He gave Alyssa mixed signals for a while until she decided enough was enough. That summer, we spoke a lot. I would say probably into my sophomore year of college, we didn't really talk too, too much. We got back in contact probably beginning of, I believe it was 2022. I was having like different relationship problems and he was someone I was talking to about them. And he was the guy that was trying to just leave him. Like, I got you just, if you come out here and visit me, like trying to get me back, basically, like, just come on. Like we were good back then. Why wouldn't we be good now type of deal? And it's like, what what, what do you mean? We were good back then. We were between nine and 12. Like that's not, good it kind of was like an on and off conversation he would get like real just hot and cold all the time and there were points where he was talking a lot and then he would just go like radio silent Alyssa has heard what the Clio 5 are up to these days and it seems like while perhaps maybe some of them have learned their lesson she's not completely convinced I know that like even now like I've seen that Trevor and Mark hang out at one point they were dating sisters not too long ago Alex I really haven't seen anything about nor have I seen anything about Kyle I know once Alex got out he like just not went and hid but he kind of just went to himself I feel like Alex and Trevor definitely learned I know Kyle did because Kyle and Alex definitely are like silent like they just stick to themselves Trevor and Mark are like constantly hanging out. I know that. I feel like Mark really didn't learn his lesson. 
he sat in juvie. He got his GED. He did three years and got out. Didn't have to do any actual prison time. He got off easy. And I don't really think he learned his lesson, even though he had to sit in there for three years, which is, isn't really anything. Even though the case is closed, it's still hard to understand why these five teenagers made such heartbreaking, life-altering decisions without a single care in the world. And based on how it sounds, without much of a care in the aftermath either. Kenneth White deserved so much more from them. He deserved more from life and more from the justice system. So did his children and the rest of his family. I know people are your friends, but you really have to sit there and look at it. Do I really need to keep you as a friend if this is what you're going to have me do? If this is what our activities are going to consist of, of us harming people, is this really what we're doing? Like, do I really need you around? Yeah, we've been friends since kindergarten, but if this is the person you're going to be, like, do I need to keep you around or should I just cut my losses and wish you well and move on? Because had they all kind of done that to one another when they knew they weren't really the best when it came to the four of them being around one another, it might not have happened. Bad friends are often disguised as good ones. They're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. At first, they appear good. Better than good, actually. They appear great. Kind, supportive, reliable, and fun. They hype you up when you're feeling down. Have your back when you need an extra line of defense. They feel like an asset to your group. Someone who brings you so much to the table. You find yourself thinking that your world is brighter because of this person. It's better. But slowly and surely, any bad friend's true colors will begin to show. What seemed like a weird quirk becomes a full-blown red flag. Their selfishness becomes more and more apparent. Their jealousy, negativity, unwillingness to acknowledge consequences become tenants of their personality rather than blips. Until suddenly you can see these bad friends with clear eyes. Their sharp teeth and long claws are more apparent than ever. These bad friends don't care about you at all. They care about themselves and that's it. And the rest is a clever masquerade. But what if it's too late when that happens? What if the damage has already been done? What if our bad friends have already led us astray by the time we even notice anything untoward has happened? Is that our own fault? Because after all, we're the ones who let them. huge thank you to Alyssa for being our first degree for today's case. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. You can follow us on Instagram, join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. Join our Patreon. If you're looking for any bonus true crime content, it is great over there and uh, stick around tomorrow because we'll have a brand new episode of killing time right in your feed. And remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close, but not that close. Shout out to Jared Monago for scoring original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, writing and research by Andrea Marshbank. Sources for this episode are Ancestry, Michigan Live, The Flint Journal, WXYZ Detroit, Find a Grave, Heavy, WDIV, Local 4 News, Detroit Free Press, ABC 12 News, 
Justia appeal documents, Tri-County Times, and live interviews conducted by my man, Dr. Mr. Phil. And as always, our first read guest is always our largest source. 